Hey guys, thanks for taking the drive down State Street. In today's episode, we cover part two of David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, Advantages of Disadvantages. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the State Street Podcast. This is Nick Kleitch, uh, the co-host of Voice, and with me, as always, are my comrades uh, and good friends, Jeremy Machino and Cole Szynski. Uh Gentlemen, how are we this evening? Nick, and uh, congratulations for not forgetting my last name. That's a, that's a big one for you. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going good. We're just firing off cylinders from work you know it's it's good to get back and get back to like talking to you guys and getting a little break from there so i'm doing good and i'm kind of ready to just you know rock this episode yeah it's kind of a if you if you if our state street residents know anything about us and know we record these on sunday evenings kind of a bittersweet day for me uh chicago bears lost but the iowa state cyclones it sounds like you're gonna have 22 or 24 starters back from a really really nice season this past year and so that's uh that's looking good and uh obviously always great to be on state street and talking to you guys and, and talking to the residents no doubt about that so we have a very fun hopefully action-backed uh episode here uh this is part two of david and goliath by malcolm gladwell um we're really gonna dive into the advantages of disadvantages and if there are any um, I think that will really be a fun topic of conversation. And just how we are going to structure this episode, we're actually going to ask Jeremy some questions that are very, very raw. He's never heard these before. And as we get his response, we're going to go ahead and share the small story that goes along or corresponds with um, with that specific section. So without further ado, if you guys are all ready, I think we can dive right in. Nick, I, uh, I'm ready to become a guest of State Street. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's a nice mix-up for us as well, too. So my first question to you, Jeremy, as it pertains to the book, if you had to coach one singular basketball game, would you find success in pressing the entire game? That's a tough one because if you're pressing your kids got to be somewhat athletic right so you would need some sort of athleticism without throughout your team to to actually successfully press but i i prefer pressing and i'm a, i'm a little different minded in basketball where you know i sucked at basketball growing up and i try to be super traditional so i'm trying not to look at it traditionally because it didn't work for me and pressing is probably something that would have worked more for me if I would have learned it. And I think pressing would be very good for, for anyone that really just isn't good at basketball, but is athletic. Okay. So why do you feel that way? Because normal basketball would tell us that that would be a very weird way of playing the game. Because people don't know how to break the press. Like no one, no one really knows how, unless you like experienced it a lot, right? Each team presses differently. Like you have your trap presses, you have your man-to-man presses, you have your zone presses, everything like that. So like no one really knows how to break it unless you've done it a lot of times and, and not many other teams press. So you're, you kind of got a golden opportunity to go press whenever you want. And most teams are going to shit bricks when they see it. Jeremy, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie there, Jeremy. You kind of impressed me with how much you know about basketball as far as like zone press, man press, all that kind of stuff. So that's just, so we run up on this story of, of a guy named Vivek Ranadive. Um, coach, he coaches his daughter's basketball team, like a youth travel basketball team, right? And uh, to the conventional eye, as the book talks about, 
the team is filled with um, a bunch of girls from who, who, whose parents are programmers, software programmers, like engineers and, and very, very intelligent people, but not necessarily like the most athletic or in his words, you know, not the most athletic. Um, he's like a CEO of a software company. And so he knows a lot about, you know, he's, he's very intellectual. He's very, very smart and well-studied. Um, but he even talks about how at the naked eye, we were not a very good looking basketball team. His daughter and, and the girls that were, were on the team, uh, initially it was something to have fun, you know, social, uh, and I don't know if I want to say they stumbled into success, but just for lack of a better, just because of lack of a better term, they did, they kind of stumbled into success with this very strategy, I guess you could say, is they didn't really, know, they didn't really have a lot of skill as far as shooting and rebounding and playing defense and handling the ball, but what they did, and because Mr. Renadive got really creative with how am I going to run this team? How am I going to coach them? How, how can we win against these teams that have played together a long time and have really good players that have really well-developed skills is you got to get creative with how you defend and with how you score and how do you do that, but by playing press defense. Now, Jeremy, to your point, I have no idea if it was man press, zone press, it doesn't say in the book, but <laughs> it is a very unconventional way to play defense. And it's something, especially at a young age, when you're playing travel basketball as a kid, you don't practice against, you don't consider it when you're game planning or, or when you're trying to run your offense. You don't consider being pressed all the way up the floor and having to play basketball for the full length of the court. Normally, you would the, the offense would dribble the ball up to half court, and that's where the defense would meet them. Um, but in getting creative, trying to overcome a weakness of his own, his team's own, uh, they decided that strategy number one was gonna, we're going to play press 100% of the time the entire game. Yeah, I mean, looking back at my very short and brief basketball career, if you threw a, any sort of press at me, I, I, I ship bricks and probably turn the ball over. And I think that goes to a lot of kids that haven't experienced the press before. I think pressing young kids at a, for basketball is a very, very easy way to win games. It's something they haven't seen before, something that they're going to, you're, you're speeding the game up on them to a point where like they're just overthinking everything and they're going to throw the ball any which way. So it definitely plays to your strength for them to screw up. And and like that's that's what I like about the press defense when you're when you're at such a young age. Right. So I think the question and and I can turn this to Nick after I ask this is is it better as a coach? Is it better to play to your team's strength or coach to your team's strength? Or do you strategize to the other team's weakness? Does that kind of make sense? And I love that. I love how they pose that because I think there's a difference there. You can play to your strengths, which may also play to the weakness of the opponent, or it's a deliberate choice where like you're seeking that out. I also want to interject here that in these situations and in life, Sometimes we try to go toe-to-toe with the Goliath and play them on their terms. And statistically speaking, as Malcolm points out, we fail very often doing this. Now, why is that? Because we're almost playing into what they exactly want. But for us to be labeled as a misfit or to upset the Goliath, if you will, we have to learn to play them on our terms. And so that is why Cole pulls that question, and I do think there is a difference with that, um, because if you are desperate enough to want to win, you have to think outside the box, and in this specific example, that would be to literally press a basketball team a whole you know, 45 minutes. Right. 
Well, and so, you know, I mentioned that this guy is super, super smart, um, but maybe he's not the most hulking individual or he doesn't have the basketball experience. It says in the book, right? Like his, his parents and his family didn't have a history of basketball and he didn't really have, he didn't have any playing experience, but what he did know, and this is a quote in the book, he knew that if they played the conventional way and if they let their opponents dribble the ball up the court without opposition, they would almost certainly lose to the girls whom basketball was a passion and they'd been playing for years. So that's where it kind of comes in. It's like, how can I get creative and scheme this so that our weakness is lessened by the other team or the opposition's weakness, right? It's like, instead of playing into their hands or trying to play into your strength and do something that you're really good at, that in some cases, Another team could be really good at too. Like if you're a really good shooting team and you come up with another really good shooting team, well, then it's just going to be a shootout and it's a matter of who makes more baskets. In this case though, it was a matter of, they didn't have really great, great shooters. The girl, the, the teenage girls, and I have a picture in my mind, they're like, probably like they're 13 years old and they're, they're, they're kind of awkward bodies, just like any 13 year old boy or girl is. They haven't grown into their body, but maybe they're starting to get tall or, or maybe they're starting to, starting to show some athletic skill. And uh, he's just, he's got to be thinking, okay, these girls have no experience playing basketball. They haven't been playing for a long time. There's a lot of girls that are really well-developed and can play at a really high level. How can I, how can we neglect those, those abilities? And what's something we can do to completely mess with that conventional mindset of playing half-court basketball, like it would be called? Um, and it's so interesting that he came up with this idea and ultimately did really, really well on a national tournament stage with these these teen this teenage travel ball team well and he also pissed a lot of people off because he did play unconventionally but isn't that how ironic or how funny that is that we just expect people just to play how we want them to play and that might not be the best way to win um so to conclude this small portion if you're desperate and you don't necessarily have all the tools in the tool shed it may be healthy for you to think outside of the box as to what problem you're trying to solve, whether that's in sports, personal, or business. Now, to navigate to the second question for you, Jeremy, that you will be asked, if you won the lottery, so let that sink in for a little bit, multimillionaire, okay, would it be smarter for you to have your child go and grow up in a household that you've had or to all the resources that you get to use by winning the lottery. Well, Nick, let me tell you about the first thing I would do if I won the lottery. Me and my kids are getting some Driftless Quality Wear. We're going straight to Driftless Quality Wear. We're checking out their new website. We're getting hoodies. We're getting t-shirts. We're getting even hats. I mean, they, they have everything. They have some of the best clothing we've, we've ever worn. We all have at least one pair of, uh, pair of clothing, clothing from Driftless Quality Wear. And, you know, we, we endorse it. They're, our, they're one of our partners. And, you know, they've been so gracious that they've given us our own um, discount code. So if you want to go check out Driftless Quality Wear and you want to buy something, feel free to type in State Street at checkout and you can get 10% off your whole cart order. Well, and to, to the point, Jeremy, you know, as Nick just asked that question, you're never too rich to save a little bit of money, right? You know, I'm sure even a guy like Jeff Bezos, when he's buying his Driftless Quality Wear or Bill Gates, you know, he wants to be comfy and, and rep the Driftless. Uh, he wouldn't mind saving 10% on, on some clothes, even, you know, those guys have a lot of money, but it's never a bad thing when you're saving money. Amen to that. And also on that topic, 
they have a kind of a nice little collection of things outside of clothing. I mean, hats and coffee mugs and uh, koozies, what what have you, but great little gifts for birthdays or, or whoever you can keep in mind uh, to represent a good small business. And we're all about that. Well, yeah, I was just going to start answering your question, Nick. And after after I get my children some driftless quality wear, I, uh, I'm probably not giving them much, much else. So... I the way I see it is I want my kids to grow up, you know, with the things they need to be successful. Like I want to invest in what will make them successful in the future. I don't want to give them all this money, all these like allowances. I'm saying that with quotation marks. Where like they get a thousand bucks a week just for being my child. Like I don't I don't see any value in that. I see value in, value in giving them money to invest in their future. Like getting them a better tutor, maybe getting them a better sports coach, maybe you know, getting them into a, a higher quality school that has better teachers, something like that, where it's in the long run, if they don't have that money in the future, they still have something that they can fall back on where they're successful and then they can go make their own money. Interesting. Okay. So even though you have the lottery money, you wouldn't want them to grow up in a household that they can have all these nice things? Well, I, I look back at it, look back at it and I'm like, you know, I, I interacted with a bunch of these rich kids who, like, I went to a school and, like, within 10 minutes of me, there there's a very large population of kids that have never worked a day in their life, and they, they get money whenever their parents, or whenever they ask their parents. And I'm like, if my kids grow up like that, I'm a failure because none of these kids know how to get a job. None of them know hard work, and none of them know basically any sort of uh, adversity. And I'm like, those three things, like you need that to succeed in life. So why would I, why would you want to take that away from your children, even though they may hate it? Interesting. So you're saying that even though you'd have X amount of dollars, your values that you would teach your children would not compromise. I think the values are are probably worth more than the, the money I can give them just in case they lose, like that money goes away somehow. Then they, then they are able to go make their own money. Gotcha. Okay. Well, it's pretty logical, I think, though, Cole, that you know, if we make more money, we can just do more things and we're going to be better off. I think that's pretty common knowledge, wouldn't you say? That, I would say that's, that's fair or that's logical, conventional wisdom. I think it's conventional wisdom. That, it, that it is what it is, right? You know, I can speak from personal experience on this just because I've been really, really lucky you know, with my upbringing. Like, Money really was never an issue. You know, thank you to mom and dad for that. That's awesome. But what's been cool, and, and this is kind of something that you don't want to go to by the wayside, like getting money, yeah, does it automatically, can, can it equal better resources or maybe better technology or a better school for a child or, or cool clothes, a nice car, like a nice phone? Yes. But, you know, speaking from personal experience, my, my parents... It, it was never money was an issue, right? But what was an issue is like what understanding what you don't want to be your reality, right? Because the money's not always going to be there and money is not everything. I think everybody knows that. I think a lot of people would, I think most people would probably agree money's not everything, right? We want we want money and, and we work really hard to make a lot of money, right? I think that's every, you know, if it, I think it's totally fair to, to strive for that and want that to be a goal. However, summers, you know, for me, during school, um, you know, I was spending doing jobs like waiting tables and serving and a little bit of bartending. And, um, I would also do labor jobs. I, I got to work for my dad and do a job where I was carrying packages that weighed between 50 and hundred pounds. Uh, 
in a hundred hundred degree heat, hundred degree plus weather. And it was, it was so, I can look back now and laugh because it's like, man, I know I didn't want to do that. And I know I didn't, I knew in the moment, it's like, do I really want to be doing this for the rest of my life? No. So in order to do so, I got to learn how to work hard. And that comes with having to do things you don't want to do. It, it comes in part with doing jobs that you know don't want to be what you want to end up doing for 40, the, the rest of your career, 40, 40 years uh, it, as a part of your career and as a part of your life. So I think that's a huge part of, of this inverted U curve, Nick, and I'll let you talk on that for a little bit, but is, is understanding what do I want to do? What do I not want to do? What do I want? I want my experiences to be. What do I not want my experiences to be? And in order to find that, you have to try things out. You have to do some things. Whether you have a lot of money or not, those things are, are required to build that attitude, to build a hardworking value, kind of like Jeremy talked about and, and, and so on. So with that, Nick, I'll let you talk on the inverted U curve because it's a really, really cool concept that Malcolm Gladwell presents. Yeah, so one of the themes in this specific portion of David and Goliath is being unconventional. And so the conventional thinking, as I kind of questioned or threw out to Cole, was, of course these things happen. But the inverted U-curve tells us that there's actually a threshold to having too much or to be too big or to be too small. And what we normally think of is a straight line out. But as Malcolm and the unconventional logic tells us is that there are disadvantages by having what are considered advantages. In this case would be money and, and how your parents grow and how your kids grow up is that we can get to a certain point in our U-curve where things are at the highest peak. And then as soon as that plateau occurs, then it actually becomes a worse situation. Now, to be very specific, there is a, a Hollywood executive in here that essentially will say it was a rags to riches tale where he had to work his way up. But ironically enough, the same principles and values and ethic that got him there, his kids will never experience because he is a multi-multi-millionaire. So they're growing up in a very different way to what he grew up. And now he still wants to, uh, you know, teach his kids these things and whatnot, but he has to go about it in a much more difficult way because trying to explain to a 13 year old, Hey, just because we have $13 million does not mean that you can be a, you know, a piece of shit or treat people different for a lack of more intelligent terminology, but go ahead, Cole. Well, and that's kind of where like the, the question of equilibrium comes in, right? It's like, how much is too much? And that's the whole premise of like that inverted U curve is how can I make as much money as possible or work, work so hard that I, I get the opportunity to make a lot of money and become financially free and, and not have to worry about money being an issue while also bringing up kids. You know, if you're a parent and we're not parents, right? We've never raised a kid before. Or at least I know I haven't. And I, I, I let you, I'll let you guys speak for yourself, <laughs> but it's, it's like, where's the equilibrium of making a lot of money, but also, like you said, Nick, allowing your children to experience things that they find out in themselves. Do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? Do I like this or do I not? And also build like that hardworking attitude of like, okay, if money ever becomes an issue for that, per that child when they grow into an adult down the road, they can fall back on the value of working hard and understand what it takes to work hard and what it looks like and what it feels like and how to do it because it's not something that's just 
you're not just born with it, right? It's not just a part of your genetics. It's something that, and that's what's so awesome about it is it can be learned over time and, and learned with enough experience. And so that's just, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and that's why this U curve is such a valuable thing to look at and, and read about in this book is because it talks about, okay, how much money is too much money? And I think the figure, Nick, you can, you can confirm this or not. It's like $75,000, right? Yeah. Per, per spouse, depending on the area. Yeah. So we'll say if you're in the Midwest and you're, you know, each spouse is making that, that's a combined household roughly of 150 K. So that's right. both getting the, again, we're talking about the maximum efficiency here. So that's enough to not feel scarcity, but not too much to where you're completely out of the loop. Um, and I'm just going to keep this rolling here, Cole, put another way. It goes from broke money is a problem. We don't have any right. middle class. We have a decent amount of money, but we don't have a lot. And then all of a sudden it gets to this kind of real, real thin margin of gold where you have enough money and you can still teach values. But yet here's the fun part of the curve as it comes back around to where too much money is actually a bad thing as what Malcolm is describing or others examples of you know, having something too small or having something too large in terms of people involved in a process, et cetera. So it's a different, well, and you, go ahead. Well, and you can boil that down to one word, right? That one word being moderation. Beautiful. And you can yes. think of it in, in terms of, of money. You can obviously think of it in terms of food. Like if I go out and I eat two pies, am I going to want to work hard that day? Or am I going to want to go work out? Or am I going to want to get anything done other than take a nap? No, probably not. <laughs> right. Um, if I make way, if I make a ton of money and I'm a multimillionaire or I win the lottery, like we talked about in our example, am I gonna, if I give my, if I give my kid and my family everything and, and buy them everything, the nicest stuff and, and kind of hand them everything on a silver, silver platter, what then are we, then, then how are we going to learn the value of hard work? How are you going to learn to work hard in a job and, learn what it feels like to maybe have to, you know, have to shop on the bottom shelf at the grocery store or maybe not have the latest and greatest iPhone. Um, it, it's, it's, a de- it's a unique perspective and it's just a question of, okay, where's that equilibrium to making money, but also understanding and practicing a hardworking attitude. And it's kind of a, and again, a conventional thinking would tell us that you always want to have more um, because it's better, safer, uh, more resources, et cetera. But what this really told me along with what you're saying is we always so much want to protect or have security for our kids, yet the very thing that got us to this point is what made us who we are today. So it's like, how much would you value that same experience for someone else? Especially if, you know, we, everyone, you could argue this, but I feel like I'm a successful child. I've made it to this point. And I, you know, so it's like, do I put all that stuff on a kid, you know, that I would have, you know, my heart would be like, Oh no, I would want them to have it better. But, but really though, would I, you know, cause that's who I right. am today uh, on that point. So we've talked about a couple of different things here to summarize before we go into our last question. So first of that being unconventional thinking and how that actually can be an advantage of a disadvantaged situation. And then the inverted U-curve that tells us there is a threshold to maybe the amount of money you make as it reflects to, to parenting and or you know having a class size too big or too small and the benefits and actually the disadvantages to those sides. Uh, so the third question, Jeremy, that I'm going to throw your way is this. So you're not an athlete, okay? 
and you have no money constraints whatsoever. What college do you go to and why? Harvard. It's an easy answer for me. The, the prestige attached to, to the name Harvard will get you in so many more doors than the prestige attached to, say, a, I hope they don't get mad at me, but like a St. Cloud State or like a, a Mankato State. Like you put Harvard on your resume, even if you got C's throughout Harvard, you're getting in the door more than you're getting through the door with a Mankato State resume and you got A's at Mankato State. It's, it's literally just prestige at that point. Okay. So it's interesting that he says that, Cole, because that to me is a very conventional way of thinking. And I would say if you'd ask that to a lot of people, they'd probably say the same thing. No doubt. Um, it, it is interesting because when you strip all that stuff away, right, it seems like a no-brainer choice. Everybody would want to go to Harvard. Now, one thing that we don't consider, and this is kind of the last little part of, of this part two that we're talking about that Malcolm Gladwell brings up, is a school like Harvard, and, and I'm glad Jeremy used that as, as an example because that's used in the book as well. That's a really, really big pond, right, of a lot of really, really smart people, right? And a lot of some of the smartest and brightest minds are in that pond. That's what makes it so big. And, and really quick, before I continue, guys, you know, talk about a big pond. A, one of the biggest ponds in the, the continental United States is Chicago, Illinois. Am I right on that? You are. So one thing that, that is really important to us on State Street, and, and before we get back to talking about Malcolm Gladwell, I wanted to talk about this, but in Chicago, Illinois, um, one of our very good friends, former guest, Dom Hilsheim, has a nonprofit that kind of throughout the cold season, um, obviously in the Midwest, it tends to be a lot colder than here on the West Coast, but even Californians will tell you that January is a cold month, right? Um, well, in one of those big ponds like Chicago, where Dom's nonprofit is based and located at, they're trying to do that very thing. And, and that's their whole initiative is zero out cold. Uh, how can, how can you do this? You know, you might be asking if you're a resident or if you know people that would like to get, get involved with this. Um, it's all donation based, right? You can donate money. You, they have a shop on their website that you can go to and buy a blanket. If you see one that makes you think of something, it's your favorite color. Maybe you really like the design or, or whatever it may be. Um, and that's kind of like, it's one way to, to give an, a random act of kindness. And I think that's a super, super awesome thing. Dom's really built this from the ground up. Um, like I said, it's super, super easy. Uh, you can go to their website. It's chitownblankets.com. It's spelled C-H-I-T-O-W-N-B-L-A-N-K-E-T-S.com. And like I said, it's super easy. You can donate money, you can donate blankets, and then they're going to go out and hand deliver all those blankets to people in need, people who are homeless, people who need them. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we talk about big being a big fish in a small pond or being a, a small fish in a big pond well chicago is it's a big pond man there's a lot of people there's a lot of people in need and um they're up to like over a thousand donations and they're continuing to grow and they've gotten a lot of great publicity and um we obviously want to do everything we can to support that and help that so if 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 that's something that you would want to get involved in as a state street resident please do um go to their website help donate and help zero out cold during the cold weather months but in reference to to our book so, Jeremy, it's interesting, like you talk about Harvard and everything, because like it's like I said, it's a it's a really, really big pond with some of the smartest people, probably even in, in the world. Right. Obviously, in the United States, because it's probably the most prestigious school in America. Um, but people come from all over the world to go to Harvard University. 
I mean, do you think that let's just use this as an example because we're talking about it, right? Let's say you're sitting in class and you know you're you're like a you're a STEM major as the book talks about. You've got a C minus. You're a C minus student. You know everybody that sits around you is like a B or an A student. Are you gonna feel very smart like sitting in that in that class or having that major when you know everybody around you is is doing a little bit better? So I uh, I actually kind of have some experience in this field because I did go into a STEM field, right? And it's it's tough because as as a freshman or a sophomore, it sucks knowing that you're no longer the smartest person in the room, right? But as you grow up, you learn to deal with failure, and we can talk about that a different time. But yes, it is it is very hard to accept that you are no longer the smartest person in the room, and mm. and that can be a deterrent for some. It's just are you are you willing to stick it out basically at that point? Well, and it's ironic because in the example in the book we lose a little bit of sight as to what is good and what is struggle. So some of the error in going to a school like Harvard is that they are very competitive and you're with a lot of people who are equal or even higher education than you, which is hard to believe, but it almost make makes you feel a little inferior at times, which is demoralizing. And the reason right. I brought up perspective on that is you're feeling this way, but yet you you have to understand, like as a student sitting in one of those classes, you are still one percent of one percent here. But go ahead and keep the ball moving on that call. Well, exa- you're exactly right, and that's actually exactly where I wanted to go with this. Was you know talk about perspective. Think about the perspective of a freshman college student at Harvard, and obviously none of us were one, right? So we wouldn't know. But I can just I can my heart my heart could go out to them because it would be so interesting and and it can be very very tough to be that freshman you're coming from high school where you were probably one of the top if not the top student in that school right like you said it's the one percent of one percent going to harvard the smartest people some of the smartest people the world has to offer and you're going to a school where all of those people are 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 coming together in one location right you're all sitting in the classroom together you're all trying to learn from these professors and and in our in the case of our example, you're trying to get that that STEM degree, and you're really super smart when it comes to math and science and and all these technical skills. But it can be so demoralizing, Nick. Like you said, when you are you are so smart, you've never experienced academic failure, and you go to this school that's so prestigious, and you're so excited about it, and and it does look great on a resume when you're going to get jobs afterwards, but. It can be so demoralizing when you're sitting in class and you feel inferior just because you know everyone around you is thriving or some people around you are thriving. It doesn't have to be everyone around you. And naturally, I think it's totally fair and logical to start to question your own intellect your in, your own intellectualness, right? It's totally normal to question, you know, am I really this smart? Do I deserve to be here? Why am I here? Is this where I want to go into? Do I need to change majors? Do I need to change schools? And that's kind of the ideology behind being a small fish in a really, really big pond or that same freshman going to a school like a St. Cloud State, Jeremy, or a Mankato. Um, I love the Minnesota references just because you're in Minnesota. But even like a, even a, a University of Iowa, or in the book, it talks about University of Maryland with, with, our, with the, the, the subject of the, the chapter, how that was the question. It was like, those were the two schools. And maybe had that person gone to the University of Maryland, they feel like they're really, really smart. They get really, really great grades. They stay in 
uh, the STEM major and they get a STEM degree rather than changing degrees and, and getting a degree in something they weren't as passionate about maybe. For me, it's tough. Like, I'll, I'll always go back to the, to the prestige thing, right? Like, your employer is going to see, they don't really look at your grades. They see the college you went to. They're never going to look into, but it's, I don't know, it's tough. Like, you can always get a good education anywhere you go. And, and there's always merits to being the, the best in your class at a small school, right? And there's always the best, there's always merits in, in learning how to fail around smarter people, right? And I've found that when I'm around better people, I'm, I'm better at what I do. So that is, that is why I'm choosing, you know, Harvard. That's why I'm going out of my way to, you know, it's, it's, it's not because I've learned to deal with failure and I, I think everyone should learn to deal with some sort of failure in some point or some point of their life. And looking back at it, probably, you know, when I was a college student, I'm not going to, uh, going to take, take the Harvard route. I'm probably going to, going to leave Harvard after my freshman year, my sophomore year. But knowing what I know now, I'm probably sticking to, to Harvard because, you know, it's, it's the name on the paper that matters more than, more than the grades. See, I, I love how you interject that because I am going to take the approach that Malcolm has and think unconventionally because though I think the prestige is there, I'm sure there's a lot of people that do go through and they do get their degrees as Cole alluded to, but I do want to point this out as well. So this comes from the book and it is a way to not necessarily rebuttal, but pose in a, in a unique sense that, um, and Jeremy, just for the record, I do agree that everyone does need to experience failure and get humbled. That is a definite side note. But it said, Harvard cost the world a physicist and gave the world another lawyer, meaning that it was so hard for this individual to go through and complete that they completely changed after their freshman year to go to and completely alter the course. So to, to use the St. Cloud example, I'm going to correct that slightly and say, do we pick the pretty good and excel greatly, or do we pick the very, very difficult and try to excel at a very, very difficult level? So, for example, if you are a parent looking to send your kid to an athletic school to play sports in college, do you take them to the the very best school where they potentially could work, uh, you know, up to three years and then go play their senior year, or do you go to a decent school and have them be the starter right away? These experiences are vastly different. And in the writing, it said that they would almost rather employ people that are coming from pretty good schools because their confidence was high, because they were the big fish in the small pond, so to speak. So there's a merit to being able to be the leader of a pretty good group um, that correlates to other things in life due to just self-confidence and, and belief in self and all these other things because they had to course correct because they thought it was a them problem when it really was a system problem in the Harvard example. But Jeremy, I'll turn it back over to you. So this is, this is literally based on what I've dealt with in my life. So I went and, and interviewed at a, a Fortune 500 company for a very good job, a very good entry-level job. And, and they asked what I did. I did software engineering, right? Like, oh, what courses you take? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took all the courses they were, they wanted to hear, right? But then they asked me, where did you go to college? And immediately after I said Upper Iowa University, I was basically written off. Their, their tones completely changed. Their attitudes towards the interview completely changed. And literally right after I said that, those three words, I knew I wasn't getting the job anymore. So that is why like, I pose the, 
I would rather be, you know, not as successful at a, at a Harvard because at least I know when I say I went to Harvard, someone's not going to write me off because I went to a, a crappy university. They don't, they don't care that, they never asked me what my grades were at Upper Iowa. They never cared like how I did in class. They just wanted to know what classes I took and where I went. Interesting. Okay, Cole, go ahead. So just to kind of tie this up, we talk about Harvard and and I know that's like when you drop like the the Harvard, it's like the H-bomb, I think they call it. But we talk about Harvard and how it it is like this big pond, right? And how people can get dejected and, and not feel as smart as they truly are just because they're not doing as well at Harvard as other people. There's such there's a cool solution that actually Harvard came up with to fix this problem. And if you're not an athlete, you're going to love this. If you're an athlete, sorry, suck it up uh, and get smarter, I guess, if, if you don't feel like you are already. But Harvard... Be, they realized they were having this problem of people who were super, super smart coming to university and failing, not thinking they were smart. So what they did was they began letting in very, very gifted athletes who were well below the academic qualifications to get into the university. And this is coming straight from the book. So I'll, I'll read it word for word. It says, Harvard began the practice of letting in substantial substantial numbers of gifted athletes who have academic qualifications well below the rest of their classmates. If someone is going to be the cannon fodder in the classroom, the theory goes it's probably best if that person has an alternative avenue of fulfillment. And this being this example being the football team, football players. And so, not to say that every football player or every athlete or every person who's at, you know, the University of Harvard other than the academic reasoning uh, is stupid or is there just because they're, uh, they have a different outlet, but it's so, it's so cool to know that they realize they had this problem and they realize that people need something to, to, to feel success and to get fulfillment from outside of the classroom. If they're not getting that fulfillment from, you know, class or academics or not getting the grades exactly they want. And so, yes, can it be dejecting? Absolutely. But um, there's a very, very good solution and it's turn and, and it's having the ability to turn to something else that you know you're going to find success or find fulfillment in. Um, yes. Is it possible to feel dejected? And, and just because you're not doing as well at Harvard as you would at the University of Iowa or University of Maryland, uh, does that mean you're not smart? No, you're still, like Nick said, in that 1% of 1%. Uh, it's just a matter of, of finding you know, fulfillment, that feeling of fulfillment uh, of somewhere else. Well, and, and just to closing, in closing here, um, it's just ironic how, though there are very specific circumstances where you need to go the route, so to speak, you must go the route. And to Jeremy's point, that is having the H there or the Yale or what have you. But there's also these many routes that people can go on that would get them at least pretty darn close to what they would want to do. In the case, as the quote that I had mentioned earlier, he completely altered his course of career due to his failures at Harvard. So if we go and be a big fish in a small pond, we may not get to maybe the caliber in which we would have desired, but we can get pretty darn close if we were in a, a separate environment, so to speak. So the, the final thing I'll say on this before we wrap it up here on State Street is think twice before you make the conventional thought process as to money, as to raising a child, out of where your child goes, where you go to college. 
and some of these other things as well too if maybe you're playing a card game and you want to uh, mess with the the giant so to speak but hope you guys enjoyed we had a lot of fun doing this in, in terms of the interview process with jeremy um, but we're super stoked to get our next guest on so we'll keep the ball moving and until next time guys 